Our scripture today is from Acts 12, verses 1 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. It's really great to see everybody here. My name is Charles Kim. I'm one of the elders here at King's Cross, filling in while our pastors and their families take a well-deserved break. There's a long passage read by our sister Sarah, and we will be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts in chapter 12. We are looking at the events that happened during the life of the early church. The people of God were living under Roman rule, and this Jesus had come onto the scene, claiming to be the Son of God, teaching with authority, performing miracles, and offending and threatening the religious leaders of the time. These religious leaders thought that they had snuffed out this Jesus movement after they had crucified him. They were wrong. The movement continued to grow and grow, following reports of his resurrection witnessed by hundreds of people. And this early church was boldly led by those same disciples who had run away like cowards the night before Jesus was crucified. 
what was even worse, one of the most passionate and forceful members among the religious leaders, the Pharisee Saul, also known by his Latin name Paul, who had been effective, so effective at killing and imprisoning these Jesus followers, he actually became one of them and was further contributing to spread this message. As Pastor John so passionately shared last week, this Jesus message through Paul and others was now spreading among the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So in this chapter 12, these religious leaders feel ever more threatened and the persecution of believers continues. In this chapter, we have the following things. Something terrible happening to a follower of Jesus, a selfish and powerful leader who orders people to their deaths, people around this leader who flatter him to gain personal benefits, a church that is praying but has difficulty believing in miracles, and the gracious hand of God working his perfect plan through this seemingly jumbled mess. These events occurred some 2,000 years ago, but the themes and lessons are just as relevant today in 2022. We will look at the three main events in this chapter, the death of James, the rescue of Peter, and the death of Herod, and see what we can learn from each of these events. First, the death of James. Verses one and two record the death of James. This James is a major character in the Bible. He is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and actually one of the three disciples who was in Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. These were the three that Jesus took with him to a high mountain where he was transfigured and revealed as a son of God in Matthew 17, and also the three that Jesus took separately to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane during the time of his greatest need the night before he went to the cross, as described in Matthew 26. This James was really close to Jesus. You may know that James and his brother John were brothers, two sons of a man named Zebedee, to whom Jesus gave the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. These are the same brothers whose mother had gone to Jesus and asked whether they can sit at Jesus's right and left in the new kingdom. This was when they believed that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish a new earthly kingdom by force. Looking at the text here, this James dies by the order of a pompous pagan king, Herod, so that this king can gain some political favor with the group at the time, the Jewish religious leaders. James's life is treated like an expendable commodity. Certainly, this is not how James or his mother imagined it when they asked Jesus about sitting at his right and left. In contrast to James, his brother John is the only disciple who is not martyred, lives to an old age, and goes on to write five out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And as we will see in the next section, even as James dies this inglorious death, Peter is miraculously rescued. So James's brother John lives, his close friend Peter is res- rescued, and James dies this early death. Wasn't James important? Didn't Jesus love him as much as he loved John and Peter? It seems like such a quick and senseless and anticlimactic death. Have you wrestled with these kind of questions? Perhaps you're in the middle of something like that now. God, don't you love me? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why do you allow that person to suffer? Why did my loved one get cancer? Why did I experience that traumatic event? Why am I having these financial problems? Live long enough 
And we all have periods in our lives when we ask these questions. It's agonizingly clear that we live in a broken world. And God's people, even Jesus' closest friends, suffer just as much, if not more, than those who don't belong to God. And so one point here is that everyone experiences suffering. And we are not to presume that we know the reason for anyone's particular suffering. Job's friends actually did this for 30-something chapters in the book of Job, trying to explain the reason for Job's suffering, but speaking nonsense and making the situation worse and eventually being rebuked. Jesus says in Matthew 5:45 that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So it's not necessarily the case that something bad that has happened to someone is as a result of some sin. Now it may be, but God says that we are to search only our own hearts and turn to God who will forgive us and not to make judgments about the misfortunes of others. A similar passage appears in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they see a man blind from birth. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus says, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We are all sinners in need of grace. Each of our stories is different, and only God, the master weaver of history, knows the ultimate reasons for everything. So in this life, something terrible can happen to anyone, even a close friend of Jesus like James. We now move on to the next section about the rescue of Peter. Herod sees that putting James to death has the intended effect of strengthening his political support among the Jewish religious leaders, so he also arrests Peter. And it's quite clear that Peter is headed for the same outcome as James. However, because Peter is trying to please the Jewish leaders, he needs to wait a few days, at least in part because these leaders would have been very busy during this period of the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The timing of this persecution against James and Peter is interesting. If you remember, the Passover referred to the time in Jewish history when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt through the 10 plagues described in the book of Exodus, the last plague being the angel of God killing every firstborn, except for those who had obeyed God's instructions to kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their door frames. The angel of death passed over those houses with the blood of lambs on the door frames, and after this plague, Pharaoh finally let the Jewish people go. The Jewish people remembered this great deliverance by celebrating the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So by working to kill these prominent apostles at this time, it's as if the Jewish leaders wanted to send a message to the early church saying, you're not worshiping the true God when you follow Jesus. He delivered the true believers during the Passover, but he will not deliver you. Look at what happened to James and look at what's going to happen to Peter. They are hoping to stamp out this Christian faith. So Peter is arrested and imprisoned to await trial after this Passover period. But why is he getting this maximum security treatment? Verse 4 tells us Peter had 16 soldiers guarding him around the clock four shifts of four soldiers at a time, and two who were shackled to him at, by the wrists at all times. 
If Peter even wanted to scratch his nose, he had to rattle the shackles. Peter is so closely guarded because Jesus' followers had apparently developed a reputation for escaping, including Peter himself, who escaped prison with the help of an angel on a previous occasion in Acts 5, and of course Jesus, who didn't stick around his grave. Herod and the Jewish leaders were going to make sure they didn't make the same mistake. But God had other plans, and no matter what man may try, he cannot thwart God's plans. In this maximum security prison, with the fate of the early church seemingly on the brink, with James having already been put to death, and Peter about to face the same fate, God comes to the rescue in a miraculous way. An angel appears, a light shines in the cell, and the chains fall off Peter's wrists. After that, the angel tells Peter to put on his clothes and sandals. If you think about it, couldn't the angel have done this also? After all, the angel breaks his shackles, leads him out all of the doors in prison, and then opens, like a modern automatic door, the big iron gate leading to the city. Surely, it would not have been too difficult for the angel to put some clothes and sandals on Peter also. But that is not how God worked. For this miracle of Peter's escape from prison, we see a combination of a few things. One, prayers. We see in verse 5 that the church was earnestly praying for Peter's release. Two, common sense, ordinary actions, like putting on clothes and sandals. And three, divine intervention all combining to make it happen. And this is consistent with how God works even today. God does the vast majority of the work, the parts that we cannot do on our own, like taking off chains from Peter's wrists and opening all of the doors and gates. But he invites us to do what we can do, like praying and taking ordinary actions in faith. God does not ask us to face or endure anything without also giving us the grace and capability, strength, and sometimes even miracles to help us when we turn to him. So with this miraculous release from prison, Peter finds himself free. We can tell from Peter's next actions how much he has grown in boldness and character since he denied Jesus three times for fear of his life the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Remember, Peter has just escaped from prison hours before he was going to be put on trial and put to death. Surely the guards who are chained to him will realize he's gone and be desperately looking for him soon. If they see that he's not around, one of the first places they would go would be to the houses of his friends. And still, Peter thinks it's important to go see his friends to share the message of his escape and encourage the early church by telling them about God's faithfulness and power. This Peter is not the same Peter that we've seen before. He's further along in this journey of knowing Jesus and becoming more like him. The next scene is actually somewhat humorous. First, consider the situation for the Christians in this house. This was the house of Mary, the mother of one of the early disciples, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Again, verse 5 tells us that they were earnestly praying for Peter and John after, for Peter after James had been put to death and Peter imprisoned. So think about how scary it would be to get a knock on the door at this time of the night. This brave servant named Rhoda goes to the door 
perhaps expecting the worst, then hears a friendly, familiar voice. She is so excited, she leaves Peter at the door, then goes back to tell those who are praying that Peter has come. And their response is somewhat comforting for us all. These brave early Christians who had been earnestly praying for Peter's release, do they hear this news and say, yes, our earnest prayers for Peter have been answered. Where is he, Rhoda? Did you leave him at the door? No, they were earnest in prayer, but they were not expectant. Verse 15 says that they actually said, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Come to your senses. Let us get back to the hard work of sincerely praying for Peter to be released. If we pray hard enough, he just might be released. They did not realize that God had already done the work of delivering Peter and had answered their prayers. Sometimes we need to look up from working and struggling on our own and open our eyes to see what God has already done. Peter encourages the church and then goes on his way to a safer place. Finally, in the last section, we get to Herod. In those days, the name Herod was a bit like the name Caesar, and it refers to a line of kings who ruled Judea under the authority of the Roman government. This Herod was not the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was, Jesus was born after hearing about him from the Magi and had all the infant boys in Bethlehem killed. You can read about that in Matthew 2. And that was Herod the Great. This is actually his grandson, Herod Agrippa. Not too much better. He was in a position of influence and was constantly maneuvering politically to solidify his power, exert his power, and display his power. He had the political motive of increasing his ratings and support with the Jewish religious leaders, and he did not care too much about the minority powerless Christians like James and Peter, who may have to suffer and die in order for him to advance his personal political interests. When his government is embarrassed after Peter's miraculous escape, certainly he's not going to be the one to take the blame, and so he blames the incompetence of the soldiers and has them put to death. Though to be fair, the explanations would have sounded quite um, unbelievable. From verse 20, when Herod had a dispute with the people of Tyre and Sidon, we learned that he exerted economic pressure to cut off their food supply and force them into submission. That is why, when he is speaking to them, they find it necessary to flatter him, saying, the voice of a god and not a man. And this was about as much of Herod's pride and arrogance that God decided to put up with, and Herod is struck down. Historians believe that this, most, this was most likely the rupture of a cyst formed by a tapeworm, and that he died about five days later. God is sovereign, even over the decisions and fates of kings and government officials. It's easy to read this passage and demonize Herod as an evil ruler as in a Disney movie. But is he so different from the modern person living in Seoul, from you and me? We have a good number of parents here at King's Cross. Do you know any parents who would do anything to help their child get ahead with seemingly little concern for fairness or right and wrong or how other kids may suffer directly or indirectly? Have you seen the drama Sky Castle? Might we have incidents in our lives 
when we look like one of those parents? Do you know any people at work or at school who would speak poorly, to a poorly of a colleague or a classmate to look relatively better in comparison? Have we ever done anything along those lines? Verse three tells us that Herod seized Peter after he saw that his killing of James pleased the Jews. The NIV says that his actions were met with approval. To his death, we see that Herod lived as a slave to the applause of man. He cared deeply about his worldly reputation and how others perceived him. Perhaps Herod's actions and life were just a bit more severe version of the type of self-centered, people-approval-seeking life that each of us may be prone to live. Finally, looking broadly at these three individuals in Acts chapter 12, we have James, who died this very unglamorous early death, Peter, who experienced an incredible angelic rescue, and Herod, who died a sudden death after having killed both James as well as some of his own soldiers just in this one chapter. Was the main difference between the three that James and Herod died while Peter lived? But you may know what happens to Peter eventually, some years later in life. It is believed he was martyred and crucified upside down at his request because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord Jesus. Peter's escape from prison was a sign of God's deliverance, but it was not God's ultimate deliverance, as we see that each of the three people here eventually dies a difficult earthly death. As mentioned earlier, we live in a fallen, broken world, and you and I and every living thing are certain to face pain, suffering, and death at some point. The biggest difference between these three individuals is not how and when they died, it's whether they knew and trusted Jesus. That was the main difference between James and Peter on the one hand and Herod on the other. Knowing Jesus makes all the difference in the world in, the, in how we live life and how we see and how we face death. We know from other parts of the Bible that James and Peter we're not so different from the average person, from you and me. Remember, we had James's mom asking for political positions, and we had Peter denying Jesus for fear of his life. But something changed in these disciples, and at the critical point in their lives, they were not afraid to boldly proclaim their faith in Christ, even to their deaths. James's death, we don't know too much about, but presumably he had the opportunity to renounce Jesus and he chose instead to continue to profess and honor Jesus to his death. With Peter, remember his situation in jail. He was guarded around the clock by 16 soldiers and chained to two of them at all times. He was not getting out, and one of his best friends had just been put to death by the same captors. How is it that he is actually sleeping between these guards on this night? Could we be sleeping in such a situation? One reason may be that he trusted Jesus at his word. John 21 verse 18 tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter after the resurrection and told him that he would be martyred for his faith 
when he is old. Because Peter is still somewhat young in this passage, it's possible that he had the assurance that he would be delivered, at least in this particular instance. We'll get back to the question of how Peter was able to take Jesus at his word. King's Cross, where are we today? What are the things that we worry about and fill our hearts with anxiety? Herod died after a lifetime of warring and scheming, of despairing when things were not going well and puffing himself up when things were going his way. We are often like the early church in our passage, which did not realize that God had already answered their prayers and deliverance was standing at the door. We struggle so much trying to do something on our own because we want to have control and feel like we need to do something or achieve something. But just like Peter's situation in jail, the troubles of this world and ultimately death are actually too big for us to overcome and face on our own. We need someone to save us, to deliver us. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Going back to Peter, how was he able to come to a place where he trusted Jesus and took him at his word? It's helpful to remember that Peter was actually someone who saw Jesus previously in a situation very similar to the one that he faced in jail. This was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was to be put on trial and put to death. Jesus sweated drops of blood and spent a sleepless night as he considered bearing the weight of death, the sins of the world, and separation from his father. Peter saw Jesus that night, and he also saw Jesus the next day as he hung on the cross, bearing the ultimate penalty for all of his failures and shortcomings. Then Peter encountered the risen Lord and even had meals with him. Peter realized that death had been conquered, and so he did not need to fear earthly death. Reflecting on all of these events, Peter realized all that Jesus had been trying to teach him, had been teaching him for years, and that all of it was true. Quoting Tim Keller, Peter realized in his heart that he was more sinful than he ever dared imagine that the Son of God had to die for him. But at the same time, he was more loved than he ever dared hope that the Son of God was willing to die for him. Because Jesus already sweated and endured the ultimate punishment for the broken world, Peter can sleep at ease no matter what he faced the next day. Jesus had become for Peter and for us the lion whose blood was spilled like a lamb's so that God's judgment would pass over us. And instead, we take credit for Jesus' perfect life so that we can approach the holy throne of God with confidence. When Peter understood that, life became all about Christ. From then on, Peter could not help but tell everyone of the good news of God's love and salvation. And so he went to encourage his friends, even at the risk of his life. Having a desire to tell others is one sign that we have met this Jesus 
received this grace and are walking with him? Have we met this Jesus? Are we walking with him? If our hearts are anxious today, and they, uh, this happens for all of us from time to time, the Bible has some words for us. Philippians 4, 6, 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the same Peter in our passage writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Whatever you are facing, bring them before God in prayer. Take ordinary actions in faith and trust God to give you the strength and carry you through all the way into his everlasting arms. Not even death can separate us from his great love. I pray that we at King's Cross would be a community that does not miss the deliverance standing at the door, the amazing work of God. I pray we will be transformed slowly but surely as James and Peter were to boldly proclaim this good news of the risen Christ here in Seoul and beyond. Let's wrap up with Jesus' words in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not a typical king like King Herod, focused on himself. You are the king who loves and lays down his life for his subjects. There is no other king like you, a humble king, a sacrificial king, a king of justice and love, the king of kings, worthy of all our praise. Would you open our eyes to see the salvation you have already won for us and help us walk in freedom without fear, sharing your word, which will increase and multiply forevermore. Amen.